Chapter 14, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or 40 Years Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 14, In England Again, Part 2. On one of these Saturday night excursions, I lay down on my extemporized couch, with the expectation of arriving at London at five o'clock in the morning. When I awoke, the car was standing still, and the sun was well up in the heavens. Thinking we were very much behind time, and wondering why the train did not go on, at last I got up and looked out of the window, and to my utter amazement I found my car locked up in a yard, surrounded by a high fence. Espying a man who seemed to have charge of the premises, I shouted to him to come and let me out of the car, which was also locked. It instantly flashed across my mind that at this station the guard, seeing no person sitting on the seats in the car and concluding that it was empty, had detached it from the train and switched it off into the yard. The astonished man whom I summoned to my assistance informed me that I was sixty miles from London and that there would not be another train to the city till evening. It was ten o'clock and I was to have been home at five. I raised a great row and demanded as my right an extra train to carry me to London to meet the friends whom it was all important I should see that day. I had to wait, however, till evening and I arrived home at seven or eight o'clock, long after my friends had gone, though to the great gratification of my family, who thought some serious accident must have happened to me. It must not be supposed that during my protracted stay abroad I confined myself wholly to business, or limited my circle of observation with a golden rim. To be sure, I ever had an eye to business. But I had also two eyes for observation, and these were busily employed in leisure hours. I made the most of my opportunities and saw, hurriedly, it is true, nearly everything worth seeing in the various places which I visited. All Europe was a great curiosity shop to me, and I willingly paid my money for the show. While in London, my friend Albert Smith, a jolly companion as well as a witty and sensible author, promised that when I reached Birmingham, he would come and spend the day with me in sightseeing, including a visit to the house in which Shakespeare was born. Early one morning in the autumn of 1844, my friend Smith and myself took the box seat of an English mail coach and were soon whirling at the rate of 12 miles an hour over the magnificent road leading from Birmingham to Stratford. The distance is 30 miles. At a little village four miles from Stratford, we found that the fame of the Bard of Avon had traveled thus far, for we noticed a sign over a miserable barber shop, Shakespeare hairdressing, a good shave for a penny. In twenty minutes more, we were set down at the door of the Red Horse Hotel in Stratford. The coachman and guard were each paid half a crown as their perquisites. While breakfast was preparing, we called for a guidebook to the town and the waiter brought in a book, saying that we should find in it the best description extent of the birth and burial place of Shakespeare. I was not a little proud to find this volume to be none other than the sketchbook of our illustrious countryman, Washington Irving. 
and in glancing over his humorous description of the place, I discovered that he had stopped at the same hotel where we were then awaiting breakfast. After examining the Shakespeare house, as well as the tomb and the church in which all that is mortal of the great poet rests, we ordered a post-chase for Warwick Castle. While the horses were harnessing, a stagecoach stopped at the hotel, and two gentlemen alighted. One was a sedate, sensible-looking man, the other an addle-headed fop. The former was mild and unassuming in his manners. The latter was all talk, without sense or meaning. In fact, a regular Charles Chatterbox. He evidently had a high opinion of himself, and was determined that all within hearing should understand that he was somebody. Presently, the sedate gentleman said, Edward, this is Stratford. Let us go and see the house where Shakespeare was born. Who the devil is Shakespeare? asked the sensible young gentleman. Our post-chase was at the door. We leaped into it and were off, leaving the nice young man to enjoy a visit to the birthplace of an individual of whom he had never before heard. The distance to Warwick is fourteen miles. We went to the castle, and approaching the door of the great hall, were informed by a well-dressed porter that the Earl of Warwick and family were absent, and that he was permitted to show the apartments to visitors. He introduced us successively into the red drawing room, the cedar drawing room, the gilt room, the state bedroom, Lady Warwick's boudoir, the compass room, the chapel, and the great dining room. As we passed out of the castle, the polite porter touched his head, he of course had no hat on it, in a style which spoke plainer than words. Half a crown each, if you please, gentlemen. We responded to the call, and were then placed in charge of another guide, who took us to the top of Guy's Tower, at the bottom of which he touched his hat, a shilling's worth, and we, placing ourselves in charge of a third conductor, an old man of seventy, we proceeded to the greenhouse to see the Warwick vase, each guide announcing at the end of his short tour, Gentlemen, I go no farther, and indicating that the bill for his services was to be paid. The old gentleman mounted a rostrum on the side of the vase and commenced a set speech, which we began to fear was interminable. So, tossing him the usual fee, we left him in the middle of his oration. Passing through the porter's lodge on our way out, under the impression that we had seen all that was interesting, the old porter informed us that the most curious things connected with the castle were to be seen in his lodge. Feeling for our coin, we bade him produce his relics, and he showed us a lot of trumpery, which, he gravely informed us, belonged to that hero of antiquity, Guy, Earl of Warwick. Among these were his sword, shield, helmet, breastplate, walking staff, and tilting pole, each of enormous size. The horse armor, nearly large enough for an elephant. A large pot which would hold seventy gallons, called Guy's Porridge Pot. His flesh fork, the size of a farmer's hay fork. His lady's stirrups, the rib of a mastodon, which the porter pretended belonged to the great Dun Cow, which, according to tradition, haunted a ditch near Coventry and after doing injury to many persons was slain by the valiant Guy. The sword weighed nearly two hundred pounds, and the armor four hundred pounds. I told the old porter he was entitled to great credit for having concentrated more lies than I had ever before heard in so small a compass. He smiled, and evidently felt gratified by the compliment. 
I suppose, I continued, that you have told these marvelous stories so often that you believe them yourself. Almost, replied the porter, with a grin of satisfaction that showed he was up to snuff and had really earned the two shillings. Come on now, old fellow, said I. What will you take for the entire lot of those traps? I want them for my museum in America. No money would buy these valuable historical mementos of a bygone age, replied the old porter with a leer. Never mind, I exclaimed. I'll have them duplicated for my museum so that Americans can see them and avoid the necessity of coming here. And in that way, I'll burst up your show. Albert Smith laughed immoderately at the astonishment of the porter when I made this threat. And I was greatly amused, some years afterward, when Albert Smith became a successful showman and was exhibiting his Mont Blanc to delighted audiences in London to discover that he had introduced this very incident into his lecture, of course, changing the names and the locality. He often confessed that he derived his very first idea of becoming a showman from my talk about the business and my doings on this charming day when we visited Warwick. The Warwick races were coming off that day, within half a mile of the village, and we therefore went down and spent an hour with the multitude. There was very little excitement regarding the races, and we concluded to take a tour through the penny shows, the vans of which lined one side of the course for a distance of about a quarter of a mile. On applying to enter one van, which had a large pictorial sign of giantesses, white negro, albino girls, learned pig, big snakes, etc., the keeper exclaimed, Come, mister, you is the man what hired Randall the Giant for America, and you shows Tom Thumb. Now can you think of paying less than sixpence for going in here? The appeal was irresistible. So satisfying his demands, we entered. Upon coming out, a whole bevy of showmen from that and neighboring vans surrounded me and began descanting on the merits and demerits of General Tom Thumb. Oh, says one. I knows two dwarfs what is better ten times as Tom Thumb. Yes, says another. There's no use to talk about Tom Thumb when Mila Patton is above the ground. Now I've seen Tom Thumb, added a third, and he is a fine little squab. But the only advantage he's got is that he can chaff so well. He chaffs like a man. But I can learn Dick Swift in two months so that he can chaff Tom Thumb crazy. Never mind, added a fourth. I've got a chap training what none of you knows, what'll beat all the thumbs on your grapplers. No, we can't, exclaimed a fifth, for Tom Thumb has got the name, and you all know the name's everything. Tom Thumb couldn't never shine even in my van, alongside a dozen dwarfs I knows, if this Yankee hadn't bamboozled our queen, God bless her, by getting him afore her half a dozen times. Yes, yes, that's the ticket, exclaimed another. Our queen patronizes everything foreign, and yet she wouldn't visit my beautiful waxworks to save the crown of England. Your beautiful waxworks, they all laughed with a hearty laugh. Yes, and who says they ain't beautiful, retorted the other. They was made by the best Italian artist in this country. They was made by Jim Call and showed all over the country twenty years ago, rejoined another. And after that they were laid five years in pawn in old Ma Wiggins' cellar, covered with mold and dust. Well, 
That's a good un, that is, replied the proprietor of the beautiful waxworks with a look of disdain. I made a move to depart when one of the head showmen exclaimed, Come, mister, don't be shabby. Can you think of going without stand and treat all round? Why should I stand treat? I asked. Cause taint every day you can meet such a bloody lot of jolly brother showmen, replied Mr. Waxworks. I handed out a crown and left them to drink bad luck to the foreign wagabonds what would bamboozle their queen with inferior dwarfs, possessing no advantage over the natives but the power of chaffin'. While I was in the showman's van, seeking for acquisitions to my museum in America, I was struck with the tall appearance of a couple females, who exhibited as the Canadian giantesses, each seven feet in height. Suspecting that a cheat was hidden under their unfashionably long dresses, which reached to the floor and thus rendered their feet invisible, I attempted to solve the mystery by raising a foot or two of the superfluous covering. The strapping young lady, not relishing such liberties from a stranger, laid me flat upon the floor with a blow from her brawny hand. I was on my feet again in tolerably quick time, but not until I had discovered that she stood upon a pedestal at least eighteen inches high. We returned to the hotel, took a post-chase, and drove through decidedly the most lovely country I ever beheld. Since taking that tour, I have heard that two gentlemen once made a bet, each, that he could name the most delightful drive in England. Many people were present, and the two gentlemen wrote on separate slips of paper the scene which he most admired. One gentleman wrote, The Road from Warwick to Coventry. The other had written, The Road from Coventry to Warwick. In less than an hour we were set down at the outer walls of Kenilworth Castle, which Scott has greatly aided to immortalize in his celebrated novel of that name. The once noble and magnificent castle is now a stupendous ruin which has been so often described that I think it unnecessary to say anything about it here. We spent half an hour in examining the interesting ruins, and then proceeded by post-chase to Coventry, a distance of six or eight miles. Here we remained four hours, during which time we visited St. Mary's Hall, which has attracted the notice of many antiquaries. We also took our own peep at the effigy of the celebrated Peeping Tom, after which we visited an exhibition called The Happy Family, consisting of about 200 birds and animals of opposite natures and propensities, all living in harmony together in one cage. This exhibition was so remarkable that I bought it, and hired the proprietor to accompany it to New York, and it became an attractive feature in my museum. We took the cars the same evening for Birmingham, where we arrived at 10 o'clock, Albert Smith remarking that never before in his life had he accomplished a day's journey on the Yankee go-ahead principle. He afterwards published a chapter in Bentley's magazine entitled A Day with Barnum, in which he said we accomplished business with such rapidity that when he attempted to write out the accounts of the day, he found the whole thing so confused in his brain that he came near locating Peeping Tom in the house of Shakespeare, while Guy of Warwick would stick his head above the ruins of Kenilworth and the Warwick vase appeared in Coventry. End of chapter 14, part 2 Recording by Matt Benzing, Oxford, Ohio.